All right, good morning, everyone. Believe it or not, we are still,、um, in a sense, on our study of、uh, John Gerhard's sacred meditations and his meditation on the desire for eternal life. What we what we did last week was we spent some time in、um, some of the biblical texts that undergird Gerhard's understanding of this desire we have for eternal life and this sense of our lives being fulfilled in Christ. And so we can see all the things we long for in this life that do not quite satisfy, that do not quite line up, are finally and ultimately satisfied in Christ. And the timing all laid up, you know, lined up, lined up. I was reflecting on that because we had our Oktoberfest celebration last night. And while I wish for the maturity of being my age now, I'm not 25 anymore. <laughs> I can feel it today, in ways that not so evidently in the past. So it's like you know, this is the lament. You have you have the wisdom, but not the energy, or you have the energy, but not the wisdom. That's what I mean by things not lining up.、And、there's countless things like this in life where you go,、uh, the gears don't mesh here. I didn't have money, and I had all these plans that if I had had money, I would have used it. Now I've got the money and. <laughs> yeah, so you know we've got all these gears that don't line up. Those gears line up in eternal life. Those desires are met in Christ in eternal life. As we looked at last week, Christ is our life. And so while we while we began with the introduction、um, of Matthew, where Jesus is baptized, the Trinity is revealed, and the heavens are torn open, we click, quickly then went to. John's Gospel to see the way that Jesus talks about being able to enter and see the kingdom as a matter of being born again, and then finding our life hidden in Him. So we're going to pick up a little bit on on those themes, and then we're going to go off to some of what Paul and the rest of the New Testament scriptures have to say pertaining to this question of the desire for eternal life. But before I get any further, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power. And the glory, forever and ever, Amen. All right, so let's open back up to John. In fact, there was a question. I'll point out something here. This will this will bring us back up to speed as we progress. Just a couple more texts in John. We could spend weeks in John on this theme, but we'll just touch a couple more texts.、Um, let's turn to John six, and we'll just have a little review of where we left off. And there was a follow-up question. Of course, the notes that I sketched after last week's class may not do it justice. So, if you were the interlocutor and I didn't get the question just right, please make a friendly amendment, and I'll be happy to answer.、Um, but as we were looking at John six, and specifically, specifically, it would be fine to pick up around、um, verse fifty-three. And we see here Jesus once more talking about life. 
So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And of course, we mused on then the, this fact that there's no such thing as being alive independent of Christ. If you reject him in unbelief, if you're independent of him, you have no life. He is life, and that means that we don't have life in and of ourselves. We only have life in a derivative sense from him. That is, I mean, that will kind of rearrange your mental furniture, if you'll allow it. Because we often just have this sinful illusion. Well, I'm alive. I have life. I'm me. Come and take it away if you think you can. You know, <laughs> um, But that's not true. It's not true. Christ is life. In fact, without Christ, even though we might have bios, to use a distinction, even though we might have biological life, breath in our lungs, you know, this kind of thing, um, are we really alive? The scriptures say, no, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So we're walking around almost in a spiritual state of zombiehood. That explains a lot, I think, actually. <laughs> but to be made truly alive is to have Christ. And here, just as Jesus in absolute terms with baptism, unless you are born again, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom. You cannot enter the kingdom. Just absolute terms. Same thing here. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You know, one of the real difficulties uh, of reading this text anything other than a sacramental way, you know, kind of people want to do this bread of life thing, and it's just Jesus and the exclusivity of Jesus. Well, all that's well and good, right, up until you get to this line about his blood. If he's the bread of life and the bread of life only, why on earth is he? And, and he's talking about his body, his flesh being that, that bread. Okay, okay, okay. But then what? Blood? And I think it benefits us to remember, too, that John is writing his gospel after decades of the church gathering together sacramentally. I mean, just think of how these words sound to you if they're read from the pulpit in the context of divine service. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. What is that going to jog your mind to? What is that going to direct your attention to, if not the Lord's Supper? So, I'll, I'll rest my case there. Uh, lest, lest we get off, off track. Um, but look at how Jesus says that life is derived by the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood. He continues, verse 54, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Look at the present tense. I mean, this is the sense in which you already have eternal life. This is really very important. Eternal life isn't something to come. Properly speaking, we talk this way all the time, and I'm not trying to indict our speech in any particular way, or you know, I'm not going to spit out my coffee and chase you down if, if you say, I can't wait till we get to eternal life. Um, you know, but, but what's John's point? John's point is not only is there this future sense of eternal life, there's this very real present sense of eternal life. That so, the eternal life is something we possess now. You look at the strength of the martyrs. 
Why is it that they were willing to lay down their lives to be so fearless in the face of torture and death? Well, one of the reasons is they realized our life is Christ. We have eternal life now. Even if they cut down the body, I don't die. Whoever lives and believes in me, Jesus says, will never die. Cut down the body, but you haven't ended my life. Jesus is my life. His body and blood are my life. Okay? So, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, there's the, there's the response of the Lord to bodily death. Though you die, yet shall you live. And here, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now notice the transition here. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. Look at the derivative there. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So look at what Jesus says very plainly. The Father, the living Father gives life to me and I give life to you. So thus we are wrapped up not only in the life of Christ, but in the life of the Father, in the life of the everlasting Trinity, of the One who is life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, finally wrapping it up, verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Of course, what we see is, this is a hard saying. Next verse, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, if it's all metaphorical, why is it a hard saying? It's just merely the exclusivity of Jesus? Well, he's preached that elsewhere. So why would they all turn away now? Maybe because he said, my body is true food and my blood is true drink. That's a hard saying, as we well know. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the capital S, Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. Look at that. Life again. The flesh is no help at all. The word that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. Probably should be capital S and capital L. So how is it that Christ gives us life? Now, word and spirit. So, eating his body, drinking his blood, believing his word, receiving his spirit. In these things we have life. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless it is granted him by the Father. All right, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away or do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And what are the words of you know, the Spirit and the words of the Spirit that give life? What are the words of eternal life? Well, as he's just said in context, whoever 
eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life. Okay, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Okay, so what do we, you know, what do we do in this sense? Um, what have been, would have been the proper response to Jesus after his John 6 sermon? I mean, I think Peter's response, that, that gives us the answer there. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, that in a sense, just um, existentially, when we go to the communion rail, if we struggle with doubts about what that bread is and what that wine is, is it truly his body? Is it truly his blood? My, my reason and senses tell me it's not. My ears tell me it is. How do we deal with that? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I trust you more than I trust myself. I trust you more than I trust my reason, my own senses. So if you tell me it is, I believe it is. I think that's the right answer. And of course, there's this mystery here wrapped up that Jesus is saying, look, nobody can come to this faith. Nobody can understand this unless the Father has given him to understand, given him to receive it. You couldn't have a clear statement of monergism. Now, does that mean that the Father's up there withholding this from everyone who doesn't believe? No, we wouldn't say that. That's not in the text. Um, that's, that's kind of a rationalistic deduction, but you can make all kinds of rationalistic deductions in theology. They're completely wrong. The art of theology isn't, this is what God's Word says, this is how my reason interprets it. Mm, that'll land you maybe in Calvinism. The art of theology is, this is what the Word of God says, this is what I I'm going to confess, even if my reason and senses are recoiling against that. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. Okay. So why did they turn away? Is it because the Father, um, you know, withheld salvation, withheld faith from them? No, they turned away because they said, it's a hard saying, who can listen to it? And Jesus didn't schwaffle. He didn't make it easy. He didn't say, oh, okay, everybody, everybody come back, come back. When I said... When I said this is my uh, flesh, you got to eat it. When I said this is my, this was all a metaphor, bread of life talk, all symbolic. Uh, make it real easy. Come on back, come on back. Ah, not at all. Said okay. I guess I'll go down to a church of twelve. Do you, do you all also want to depart? Maybe I'll go down to a church of zero. <laughs> and by God's grace, we have the Father revealing it to Peter and the others, and then, of course, from there it expands back out again. All right, so maybe that does enough to treat on John 6 and this concept of life, life being given to us in the sacrament. And again, lest we see this kind of sacrament as, as some sort of weird theological tangent or some indifferent or secondary thing, uh, do recall, do recall the words of our Lord when he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. The New Testament scriptures teach us that the New Testament is, in one place, the cross of Jesus. Jesus will, will kind of refer to it as this, and you know, implicit in his language, of taking his body and taking his blood. The body and the blood have been separated. There's a sacrifice that has been made. And then elsewhere in Hebrews. But here's the point. The cross and the Lord's Supper are one. And that singularity is the New Testament. And so, if you're not partaking of his flesh and blood, you're not partaking of the New 
Testament. That's why he can make this statement that, hey, without, without the body, without the blood, it is, it, there's no life. Why? You're not part of the New Testament. You're not part of the whole thing. You see, so that's the absolute way in which Jesus speaks here. Um, all right. Well, maybe that's sufficient then uh, to wrap that up. I had in mind that we go to just a couple other texts in John as we motor along. But before we do, I know that this is a difficult section. Are there any thoughts, questions, comments, uh, any balancing you want to uh, you want to do? I see a hand, but unfortunately, it's all the way up in front here. Sorry to do that to you. Do I understand that uh, Martin Luther, when he looked at this passage, he made no connection to the Lord's Supper? If you could comment on that as to why that may have been, and mm. uh, that would be helpful. Yeah, sure. Well, this, this section has always been a kind of interpretive open question. The real question for us as Lutherans isn't so much, what does Luther think? Because Luther thought some things that were wrong. I, I think some things that are wrong. Every theologian thinks some things that are wrong. Okay. But the Book of Concord really is, is what gathers us together and defines us as Lutherans. It's what we all sign off on and say, um, the, the Word of God is the, uh, the Norma Normans, the norming norm. All right. Because the Book of Concord is a clear explication, a clear restatement, of what the scriptures say on these particular issues. It's the norma normata, the normed norm. Normed by the scriptures, you see, and then norming for us. So it's a secondary theology. Analogous, analogous, the sun and the moon. The confessions only are like the moon. They only reflect the shined light of scripture. And yet you hear, you'll hear in our Old Testament, Thus, both the sun and the moon rule. They're both authorities governing the, the day and the night. Well, by parallel, the scriptures and the confessions as sun and moon rule over us and define what our faith is. And the confessions, in some places, speak of John 6 sacramentally. So we're well within the bounds of formal Lutheranism in talking about it. Here's my take on what happened to Luther. And I, listen, I, if he was here, he'd probably have all kinds of expletives and um, intensity to shower upon me, and I, I would listen. I would ask questions, but I would listen. Um, no doubt about it. But here's my take on it. Uh, that, that battle with Zwingli, who in many respects is kind of the, the theological grandfather of so much of evangelicalism today, generic Protestantism today, that battle was so intensive. And Luther, in particular, was fighting a two-front war. I mean, can you even imagine the whole world against you? Um, the church, with all its political power, a two-front battle against the Roman Catholics. And then, no sooner does he does he initiate the Reformation, and the and the Roman Catholic Church is shoving him out, which of course he never wants to do. He never wanted to start his own church, thus reform, <laughs> not not start new, but reform. And so he's getting pushed out by them. And then what's the worst possible thing that could happen? 
if those who are allied with you start dividing along all these radical, ridiculous things, right, on, on this other side. Now you're flanked. Now you're fighting a two-front war. And in many respects, this secondary sort of flanking of the radical reformers that pop out is even worse because these are the folks who are former allies and they're sitting in the pews and, you know, it's a big, huge mess. Zwingli really being a figurehead of that and a really dangerous figure because of his teaching on this, on the sacraments in particular. But there were other things as well. But on the sacraments in particular, Zwingli, Zwingli has said, um, that there is, uh, the distance between Christ's body and the bread is the same distance as earth from heaven. Just you couldn't get them farther apart. The bread is purely symbolic. The wine is purely symbolic. That's it. Now, why did, on what basis did he make that? Well, good luck making that when you're looking at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, who also retains the Lord's words of institution. These are the four loci of the words of institution in the New Testament scriptures. And in each one of these, you have Christ very explicitly saying, this is my body. If I can recall, hoc est corpus meum um, in Latin. And it said that Luther, pull, <laughs> at some point in time in this debate with Zwingli, wrote these words in Latin on the table. And I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently dramatically like whipped off the tablecloth at the climax and was like, Hawk est corpum mea, this is my body. I'm not doing anything else. That is our theology. You, Zwingli, have a different spirit. Okay. Well, what did Zwingli want to do? He obviously didn't want to engage on the basis of those four texts, which are the words of institution, because they all are against him. So what did he want to do? Well, he wanted to run to another text. And one of those key texts that he ran to was John 6. If you, if you zoom in on, um, let me see where it is. There it is. If you zoom in on 63. Now keep in mind what, what John 3 has taught, um, where Jesus is with Nicodemus and where Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. What's he talking about when he says that which is born of flesh is flesh? He's talking about our earthly life and our earthly existence. We cannot see the kingdom. We cannot enter the kingdom. We're doomed to die. But that which is spirit is spirit. That which is born of water and the spirit, that's the new man. And we can see the kingdom and we can enter the kingdom. Make sense? Now, when we look at verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. We know exactly how to read that. It's the spirit who converts us. And then we're alive spiritually. It's the flesh, the old Adam within us that can do nothing spiritually. We know how to read that because we're gospel of John literate. Guess what Zwingli did here? I hardly even want to tell you because it's just so pernicious and so twisted and it can get stuck like an earworm in your brain. All right. This is what he did. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh, that must mean the body of Christ in the sacrament. The flesh gives no life at all. Therefore, the flesh isn't even there. I mean, now it's a little more sophisticated than that. But that was the gist. That's why he wanted to go here. 
And he felt as though he could play games with,、um, you know, the beginning of this sermon in John six, and then the very end in the last lines. This business about、um, the bread of life that comes down from heaven, which nobody's going to. I mean. I, He's just going to look at that and say, "Look, this is very explicitly symbolic. The flesh that you claim is here profiteth nothing. So thus, we have to understand the words of institution symbolically." Now, is that good theology or bad theology? Real bad, real bad. So,、um, don't be swingly. Now, what? Did, so, what did Luther do? All right. So, what did Luther do? Luther said.、Um, I'm not dealing with this. I don't have time to deal with this. John six isn't even talking about the sacrament. Let's go back to hoc est corpus meum. Let's go back to the words of institution that indisputably are about the Lord's Supper. And so that's how we went. And so then, then Luther reads this. And and there's you know there's differences in church fathers, so you can lock on to different church fathers as Luther did and make an argument that this. This has no direct bearing on the Lord's Supper.、Um, I, my response to that, in general, again with all due respect, because these men are giants, it's just giants can be wrong.、Um, and and my response in general to that is: read this text in divine service and ask your seven-year-old child what he's talking. And that seven-year-old child is probably going to say, "Meeting his flesh and drinking his blood, like we do right there at the altar." Okay, I rest my case. We can't simply say that this text has zero to do. Now we can we can argue about how much it has to do, and we can maybe meet in the middle or disagree in the middle. That's fine. But just this idea of Cut John six out of the Bible when you're talking about Eucharistic theology has always struck me, and many many others, as being weird and wrong. And so I'm greatly heartened, greatly heartened by the fact that the confessions back me up on this point and actually cite John six in at least one, but maybe more than that. I would be pretty confident to tell you two <laughs> places in which they cite John six. Sacramentally, so sorry for the long answer, Barry, but we're close to the Reformation. Now, when people are、uh, talking about Luther and Zwingli and the Lutheran confessions, we have some Barrys. Please, yeah,、uh, the the business about I, I I thought I remembered that it did come down to this business about the flesh profits nothing. Yeah. Now, to me, this is an example of just idiotic reasoning, because if you take that view, the flesh. Great. Then Jesus didn't need to be incarnated. We're done. Exactly right. We're done. Christianity's over. Thanks, Swingley. Yeah. You know, it's so stupid. It's 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 breathtaking. And I kind of can see what Luther was up to. He was like, you 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 know, in order to deal with Swingley's, you know, Holocaust denial level of of lies, he just sort of, you know, said, okay, well, whatever. You know, to to the to the to the minor thing. This not that this is that minor, but you you know that that when you're dealing with someone who's just in a doctrinaire way, just completely denying something that's plain, you deal with that, and then you don't, and, they, and you know, you sort of grant all the stupid stuff, the littler stuff that he says, right? And that seems like 
is what was going on here. Yeah, that's really where it surfaces in the ethos of Lutheranism. Now, I mean, I'm sure you could write a PhD on what if Luther had views regarding John 6 prior to all of this controversy. Maybe he lands on a it's non-Eucharistic kind of kind of side. He wouldn't he wouldn't be the first to lean that way. But it is my it is sort of what I surmise that given this conflict and given these things, it, it's very much as you said and and very much as I said earlier that that Luther just doesn't want to deal with this and would rather just cut it off, deal with the words of institution themselves, and let that word stand in terms of our uh, sacramental theology. I, to which I would actually agree that um, John 6 has to do with the Lord's Supper, gives us, gives us reason to reflect on the Lord's Supper, but it's not precisely the words of institution either. You know, the words of institution take on a formality um, and, and sort of a, a foundational quality about them. And I certainly wouldn't deny that. Yeah. Uh, of course, Jesus' claim that he'd tear, to, you know, that if they tear down the temple, he'd build it again in three days, isn't the story of the crucifixion and resurrection either. It's right. him predicting right. that. And that's what I'd say about John 6. It's him, yeah. you know, foreshadowing that this is going to be... Yeah, you, you know what you what you what you need to to do. Yeah, this um this theology all has a parallel. I'll just mention this briefly. It's off topic, but it's worth it. Um, this theology also has to do with uh, so the the approach of the radical reformers, um, some of them at least, that distances itself from sola scriptura and believes in direct revelation from God, in the same way that there's this kind of denial of. Um, the spirit versus the flesh versus the Eucharistic body of Christ. There's this denial of the spirit versus the letter of the law, the letter of the scriptures. You, you see the parallel there? And so we don't believe in sola scriptura. We believe that God speaks to us immediately in our hearts via his Holy Spirit. Um, this the Lutherans labeled enthusiasm. Not No longer God in and through the scriptures, but God in and through us, God inside, enthusiasm, and um, then schwärmer. Isn't that a great German word? Schwärmer. The swarming and buzzing of God said this, God did this, God blah, 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 um, all while denying what the scriptures actually say. Yeah. So I just thought I'd bring that up as a little bit of a parallel, because it gives you insight into that dynamic, too, um, that was alive and well. A distancing in so amongst some of the radicals from the sacraments and from the word into this internal spiritualization. Okay. Yes, yes, sir, please. Yeah, I have a question on, on the entire body of work, uh, including the miracles, including uh, Old Testament things like the Valley of the Dry Bones. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and when Jesus was crucified, the uh, one of the things that happened was the the graves were opened and there was mm -hmm. uh, things zooming around, bodies zooming around. Uh, at any rate, my question is, why don't we look at it, the total, uh, all the miracles and and these accounts as one body of work, and and bring them to bear on the argument or the to support. Uh, the sacrament uh, as we view it, because he's either changing water into wine 
or food, uh, multiplying the food at the feeding of the 5,000. All the miracles are, indicate some sort of forgiveness of sins. The raising of Lazarus and the others is a life-giving force. And to me, aren't they all linked into this hmm. uh, uh, new covenant? I think, they, I think they are. And I would have to do justice um, maybe at a different time to that perspective. But uh, yes, I think in many respects, the Gospels assume some of the fundamental questions we're going to have. Think about it this way. What is... Um, I mean, as the climax of all four of the Gospels is the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, nested within that climax is the Lord's Supper, which is the highest of the Christian mysteries. And as we said also, it is, it is literally the New Testament. So wouldn't we expect to see something so difficult to believe as Christ saying, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. Wouldn't we expect to see then in the rest of the Gospels some sort of preliminary preparation that prepares us for that moment so we're not we're not taken and indeed that's exactly what we find we find it extremely subtly like like jesus when he is um when he's born where is he laid okay yeah yeah i mean it would yeah i guess they could have put him on a dinner plate <laughs> but, uh, so he is put into a feeding trough, and he is born in the city of Bethlehem, house of bread, and he himself is the bread of life. So already we're starting to get these, these themes of him being food. Food. And then we have specific questions, like how on earth could he make wine his blood? Well, Cana, if you believe he can make water into wine, why would you not believe that he could make wine into his blood? You see, um, questions of, well, wouldn't he be violating the nature of physics if he took his body, which is finite, and had it distributed all, all over? Well, did he violate physics when he took the five loaves and two fish and distributed so, though you see what I'm saying, the whole thing all the way leading up, and I mean, no doubt about it, even just the sense of the Lord's Supper not taking place in a vacuum, but taking place in the context of the Passover, where the lamb is eaten, um, and he is the lamb of God, he is our Passover lamb, and then he gives the bread as his flesh for them to eat. And the blood doesn't go on the doorpost. That's the big change. I mean, if there was one thing that maybe we were unprepared for, it's when he says, drink the blood. But that's where we need to be Old Testament literate. And we need to understand that throughout the entire Old Testament, there's the blood prohibition. Do not drink the blood. Why? The life is in the blood. So do not drink the blood. The blood has to be separated from all the sacrifices. Do not drink the blood. Do not drink the blood all the way through. Every single Passover that the people of God celebrated for generation after generation after generation, as they're preparing the Passover lamb, they're draining the blood and they're saying, do not drink the blood. The life is in the blood. All of it is this beautiful negative kind of antithesis until Jesus says, take drink. This is my blood. I kind of... I. If I were a disciple, I would have like fallen out of my, <laughs> just, like, I'm sure that that was, if there was a moment of surprise, that was probably it. But it would also click. 
It would also click for you that if this is the Lamb of God to which all the Old Testament scriptures and types, the entire sacrificial system and um, the Passover, all of these things have pointed to and now are fulfilled in him, the Lord in flesh there. And he says, drink my blood. You're going to go, but I can't. The life is... I can't. I have to. His life is in the blood and his life is my life. So, yeah, I think, I think it behooves us too to consider these things in light of the scriptural context in terms of the Old Testament catechesis and especially the New Testament catechesis that leads us up. If we're, if we're being really careful with our ears and our thoughts, we're being catechized by the gospels all the way up to this climactic point at which Jesus says, take, eat, take, drink. And we've already built our thought paradigms. We've already had lesser things in which to put our faith, water into wine, multiplying bread, etc. So that we've got all these little building blocks so that when he says this, those immediate sort of reasonable rejections can be quieted. We can say, he's done this before. He's done this before. So anyway, I think that um, the Holy Spirit knew exactly what he was doing when he constructed the Gospels, and he knew that the climax was going to include the Lord's Supper, and so he gives all these hints along the way. And truth be told, there are many others that I've left out just for the sake of time. Uh, Hand up here, please. One thing that I noticed as you were reading the passage is the Trinitarian component of this passage. Could mm-hmm. you comment on the connection to maybe the Nicene Creed or um, what? There's so much depth here. Yeah, do you like want it for me? <laughs> I, think, I think it's a great observation that you've made, a great observation. I just don't want to guess at what you might be. Well, I just think it, it seems like... Um, I, <laughs> I'm not the theologian in the sure, room, sure. but um, I would say that Jesus is connecting the life to the Trinity, mm-hmm. that from the Father, the Father's life comes to Jesus, and then t- to the Spirit, the Spirit comes to us, and so that's our, it's all wrapped up in our connection and communion with the Trinity. Great point. Yeah, yeah so, so hearkening back to uh, verse 57... As the living Father sent me, I mean the one who is life and has life and derives no life, sent me and I live because of the Father. So the Father gives life to the Son. So whoever feeds on me, again we've already talked about, we've already talked about, um, if you don't eat my flesh, drink my blood, you have no life in you. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So we derive our life from Christ. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Remember the manna? Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, um, you have in your your English Bible a, a nice little break with a new subheading. Of course, in the text that John wrote, that wouldn't be there. It just flows immediately on. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? In other words, what are they doing here? They're cutting themselves off from life. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And now to your point, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all giving life in their own unique way. And thus that life we have given to us by the Spirit who draws us into the Lord Jesus, that Lord Je- the life of the Lord Jesus, that's our primary derivative, right, from him. Um, and then, and then secondarily, we realize that his life as the son comes from the father. And so that life we share is the life of the son. Our, we're wrapped into the life of the one who is life. And now this is, this is life in its, in its fullest possible extent too. I mean, you really can't understate this. This is what, what, um, Gerhard spent so much time fleshing out for us. This, this is of what that life consists. All the things that we were created being satisfied in him. Right. So anyway, thank you for pointing that out. If you had anything else to add or if I was going off on a tangent, but I really appreciate you. No, not at all. I just, I know, I don't know where all the passages that explain the Trinity, the concept mm. of the, tr- mm. the doctrine of the Trinity are, but this seems so clear. Yeah, yeah. So obvious. Well, and in John's gospel, you've kind of got this unique thing. Of course, in the end of Matthew's gospel would be one example where you are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there's there's no real hierarchy there. They're all, you know, co-equal, co-eternal, etc. And um, the Ath- the Athanasian Creed, of course, is masterful on this, and it's in the backdrop. But in John's Gospel, the typical way is what we call the economic Trinity. Sometimes there's this distinction used: um, ontological versus economic. Okay, ontological is looking at all three of the persons as equal. Okay, and they are. That never goes away. And the three persons are one God, not three gods, one God in three persons. Okay, and that never goes away. So you lock onto that. Period. Now, what John does is says, see how they function. Because they actually function with an economy or a hierarchy. This is where Jesus says, like, the Father is greater than I. You know, if, we're, if we don't have our bearings on what John's doing, we might freak out. No need to freak out. It's already been established that the three persons are equal. That's the ontological aspect. What is the economic aspect? How does this work? And here's where you see difference. And you see the economic aspect coming out of the text here, where it is the living Father. Where does he get his life from? No one. He is life. Yeah, he is life. And then look, I live because of the Father. Where is the incarnate Son getting his life from? From the Father. You see, so there's a distinction between persons. There's an economy going on there, you see? So John's Gospel can be really confusing. It can be exploited by heretics um, on this point if we don't understand that he's working with the economy of the Trinity, the sort of hierarchy and ordering of the Trinity as it functions for our salvation. So a key part to kind of look at John's gospel uh, with that lens. Did I see another? We're okay? Boy, we spend a lot more time on that than I thought we would. I hope it was edifying. Um, all right. Oh. <laughs> well, okay. So, so yeah, that, to, that, okay. So again, just to clarify though. Um, the book of Concord allows the use of John 16 sacramentally, but it doesn't require it. And so if we meet brothers and sisters in Christ who are uh, Lutherans, who are on the side of Luther on this particular question, you just don't see it. You, you've got your, and there are good arguments. 
um, that can be employed to some degree against that position. What happens when you meet a Lutheran with that? You listen, and you don't divide, and you don't condemn, because this is truly an open question. Um, there's nothing definitive. There's nothing binding on the conscience here. We have to say, John 6 is sacramental. If you don't think so, you're not Lutheran. Or if you think so, <laughs> you're not Lutheran. <laughs> it works both ways. So I always say this is an open question. We're not going to divide over this issue. Let's learn from one another um, and be edified together. Um, I was just wondering, too, though, back when we were having the original discussion about Luther and whether he thought of this as sacramental or not, I'm not sure that, well, he's not here to tell us what he thought. Right. But I'm not so sure that I see him going for the larger fruit and refocusing. It's like a flak bomb. And you can get lost in all the damage that can be done. And he had one proof text that he knew, you know, east, east, east. We've been all burned that in, what, that Luther had said that. This is the body. This is the blood. And it, you cannot change that for any. And whether he maybe zeroed in on that. And then as you go deeper and deeper into studying that and knowing that and accepting that and believing that, this other text becomes more clear to you too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. No, I'm, I'm with you. And I actually, I actually think, you know, John 3 doesn't mention baptism by name. It says you must be born again or born from above. It says you must be born of water and the Spirit. But we all take that to be baptism because what else on earth could it be? Well, if you want baptism in John 3, how are you not going to have the Lord's Supper in John 6? That, you know, so what are we to make it? What's really the formal? point of that argument, that we're reading John as, a, as an independent literary unit. And that's the beauty of the scriptures, because the scriptures are a whole, all inspired and written, as it were, by the Holy Spirit, okay? but they are written through unique men with their unique lenses through which they're looking at theology, looking at particular questions and teachings, and fleshing that out in great diversity. And so we have no problem whatsoever saying that the same Holy Spirit who pens the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, also penned John. And yet we can look at these because he penned them through individual authors. We can, we can look at them each also as their own individual literary unit and say, what is it likely that John's thinking here? And then some of that involves like, let's go into the context. What's going on in the life of the church at this time that we know? And how is, how is this likely to be received within that community? And so all of this then is really fruitful in terms of our exegesis, our understanding of the scriptures. Yes, sir. Um, you mentioned that, that, uh, there are people that have good arguments for, for the idea that this isn't the, the, uh, talking about the supper. Sure. Uh, we talked about Zwingli who did not have a good argument. Right. So right. I'm wondering what this, these good arguments are. Pretty sure Augustine's good on, on the counter argument to this. He tends to see it, um, so that the, so the, they, the, I think the best argument is that the scandal is the exclusivity of Christ and the, and that Christ puts himself as, um, the manna. So to Jewish ears, that would be scandalous. 
that, that there's manna right here of which our fathers did not have and we have, and he's claiming to be that manna, that bread from heaven. He's claiming to be the bread of life. He's, cl- and then, um, I mean, those are kind of your best arguments. Cause you, I, to me, the question is, where do you get this scandal where Jesus loses? Well, I think this is right after what? The feeding of the 5,000, is it not? Yes, it is. Yeah, thank you. Yes, it is. Um, not counting women and children. They all depart but the 12? That's a pretty big congregational loss. I preached some sermons that people have left over. <laughs> but not 5,000 plus. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so what's the scandal? That's, I think, the, I think really the essence of the question. And so you have to redefine that scandal as not being eating his flesh and drinking his blood, but more like the exclusivity of Christ or his claim to have such a prominent role. Um, that, that kind of thing is all that remains. Of course, he, he does claim that it's blood also. And I, I don't remember too much blood involved with the manna. So I, that to me is another hang up. Yeah. yeah I, I, mean, I put to, that in the column of it's obviously saying something about the Lord's Supper here. Yeah. I, that, I just put that in that column. Um, yeah. I mean, frankly, the argument that, that the water that they're talking about in John three is amniotic fluid. I know you've, you've knocked oh, that gosh. one down a oh, million gosh. times. And you, you do just, a good you job at it, too, by the way. You just increased my need for a nap with that <laughs> You do a good job at it, too, by the way. <laughs> I'll try not that, to get cranky That, to me, that is one. more plausible yeah. than the idea that this isn't about the Lord's Supper. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you. I'm not, obviously, the, the best one to give a counter-argument here because I believe what I believe, so it requires me setting aside all that and trying to do something alien. But, all right, well, this was an odd class. Uh, <laughs> It's kind of like you wake up in the morning and you think you're going to, this is what my day is going to look like. And God's like, nope. (laughs) Well, I thought the class was going to look one way and it looked another way. We'll pick back up on this theme next week as long as it's still engaging. Hey, if it's not engaging, would you just whisper in my ear? Let's move on. I won't take offense and we'll move on. Uh, The Lord be with you.